Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to the Lonely Cello Podcast. I'm Emily Wright, and I am here with Tom Limbert. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, how do we know each other? Well, we met uh, when you were teaching my wife cello. We lived in Washington D.C. at the same time, and my wife wanted to learn cello and found you, and the rest is history. Yeah, Marge was so, um, she was one of those scary students who constantly like underestimated how quickly she was improving. And mm -hmm. so like every week I really had to be on my game <laughs> because like, I'd be like, would you learn these things? She's like, that sounds really hard. And then the next week she's like the Terminator, like <laughs> what's next? Right. Oh God, <laughs> you did the thing. I wasn't she expecting is, that. She's an amazing musician. And I mean, the fact that she's not doing it full time. I know. Yeah. yeah. Such a, such an ear. And I think it also helps though, to be kind of um, like surrounded by people who are super stoked about music in general. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. very encouraging. So um, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure you are actually my first composer on here. We've got all kinds of other folks on. So um, Neat. yeah. So why don't we just start with kind of um, what was your journey in music, you know, how did, how did you start? Why did you start? Um, yeah, take, take us sure. through how you got to where you are now. Gosh, it's a, it's a long and eclectic road, but you know, my family, most of my colleagues or people I meet that do this stuff, they usually have like a family member that was very musical, but I didn't, my mom could carry a tune, but other than that, um, but I, I, I think I showed some interest. I remember my neighbors had they had a piano and an electric keyboard and a drum set. And I remember like I was probably four or five and I'd want to go over there all the time to play with the stuff. So Are you sure your neighbors weren't the monkeys? <laughs> they could have been. <laughs> um, but uh, so my parents eventually bought me like a little Casio keyboard when I was seven. And that kind of started like I was obsessed with that thing. I would make I would try to do things on it that really weren't supposed to do. It was just like this little toy almost with like a few drum beats and, you know, I'd write songs. And I remember I played for my fifth grade graduation ceremony, you know, this little keyboard hooked up to what, my boom box. Can I ask, was it the one that had the banjo patch where if you just like pushed the key, it would go. -na 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 -na. It did not have that. I oh. know the one you speak of. I think this was even earlier. This was all like square wave based like yes. analog yeah it was um amazing because yeah, yeah, so that, that banjo was, one that that like drove me to and then away from keyboard instruments right right <laughs> this one probably should have driven me away but it didn't for some reason um but yeah and then you know like a lot of people when i was i guess nine you know i could join the school band i really wanted to play saxophone but we didn't have a saxophone but we had some drums because my older brother played drums, but he was quitting. So my mom was like, why don't you just play drums? I was like, okay. And so, so then I got really into drumming and, you know, um, did and who, that for, 
who were you listening to at, at that time? Like in my, um, so I'm 44. So most of the drummers of my age were like, as soon as they heard the drum fill in, in the air tonight, they're like, I'm taking drum lessons. Right. <laughs> right? Like that's the one that everyone's like, you know, like guitarists were like ruined by like Eddie Van Halen's tone. Right. They're like, that's what makes me want to take guitar. Right. So like, who were you listening to? Who are some of your favorites? By the way, my very first music crush was Stuart Copeland. So I was listening to a lot of police, oh, man, yeah. what a nerd. He's so good. I know like all the, you know, classic rock, progressive rock rush. I was a huge yeah. rush fan. Yeah, Neil Parrott in there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Zeppelin, I'd play along to Zeppelin records and yes, Genesis. Yeah. So yeah, I'm 48. So we're close. Yeah. I'm we're saying. super close. I am. Yeah. I think I've seen, this is kind of weird. I think I've seen yes more than any other band. Wow. Because, well, because there was always a sense that like this could be the last tour. Sure. Right. And then, um, and then, um, why well, can't I remember keyboard? Why am I forgetting his name? Uh, Along with a long robe. <laughs> he, he rejoined them in like the mid 2000s. And then I got to see them a whole lot with Dream Theater as an opener. Was that Rick that was Wakeman? Weird. Rick Wakeman. Yeah. I was going to say Mick. Yeah. With, with Rick Wakeman. And it was just like, yeah, I think I saw them. I've probably seen them like 20 times. It's wow. like a deeply, yeah, they're in my DNA, but like just such good music. So yes. I mean, it's musicians, right? Like they always say musicians have the worst taste in music because we pick right. the stuff that's like inaccessible, but honestly, yes, taught me a lot about composition and form and yep. development and also when to um, edit though, like South Side of the Sky, that mm. song should be half as long. We're just, I'm just putting it out there. Sure. But anyway, yeah. okay. So, so these are the people that you were listening to. Right. And then when did it start turning into like you being, you know, inventing your own stuff? Cause that's really weird for us string players, right? We are yeah. slaves to the page traditionally. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the drums sort of led to classical percussion. So in high school, I, you know, started playing marimba. I took lessons. Nice. And, um, and I started writing music for marimba. That was kind of the uh, you know, that stuff I could play. I think my first mm. composition was like a marimba solo. Um, and then when I got to college, my percussion teacher was also a composer. So he really encouraged that. Like, I think it, he was the one that said, you know, you wrote this, I brought him the piece that I wrote in high school. And he's, he's like, you should go to the composition professor and show him this and take lessons. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I think along it around the same time I heard uh, Steve Reich's music for the first time. <gasps> yeah, for me it was and music that, for eighteen musicians. I was, was just gonna like, say, yes. Wow, life changing. <laughs> that was the aha moment, and I think a you know a friend, you know another bandmate in the in the concert band with me, she had played some Steve Reich at a like a in high school, which I couldn't believe. But she's like, "You're a percussionist. You would like his music." And I didn't, I, I was attracted to the percussion, but it was the the chords, the rhythms. And I think most of all, it was like, wow, you can be a composer. You can be considered a composer and write music that's this cool. Like I just, I thought comp composition was like formal composition was kind of. It seemed know. like physics, right? Like yeah. it, it has to be like this and also I grew up around a lot of new music that was inaccessible and like yeah. Steve Reich's music, like it, 
it, there is, there is complexity and nuance there, but I think it also is like a very welcoming embrace for people who like, I yeah. think there's sometimes like a pop sensibility to some of it, sure. right. The way the chords move, um, and how he also is like, we're going to resolve this. Right. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're going to be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah. you know, the fact that, you know, when the, when the chords do change, finally, it's like this euphoric kind of like release. Um, it is that man builds the, the tension and release the push and pull. It is actually listening to that piece is like a master class and like how much the you're, you can expect your listener to endure. Right. <laughs> right? And exactly. then just before and he, but it never gets unproductive. Right. Um, right. I mean, it's, and it's like one of those pieces. I remember my, my grad school uh, teacher, um, he did, he wasn't a huge fan of minimalism. He understood its place in the history of, of composition, but he loved that piece. Like he, that was, that's the one minimalist piece that if you're not a minimalist fan, you can still really sink your teeth into and find lots of interesting things going on. So that was the, that was the kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess. So I started writing all sorts of minimalist inspired music. Um, but my first undergrad teacher, he was not also not a minimalist fan. And I always remember this. He said, when I would bring him a piece that was minimalist at all, he'd say, you know, the thing about bad minimalism, it's bad, but it's also minimal. <laughs> so, and I don't, I don't think I knew what he meant at the time, but that, you know, looking back as I've looked back at that, what he meant was that if you write minimalist music, you're kind of you you have an extra challenge of making it interesting in in ways that you don't have to worry about as much when your harmonic rhythm is faster or you're not as you know so you you have to do things with with rhythm and meter and um so it doesn't have to be minimal right that that's right Even that's it's why music. that's why like um there's a documentary about um this artist who along with a broker, I think in Boston, forged a whole bunch of paintings and they were caught because the Rothko looked wrong. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> it's like a giant, you know, blue with right. like a single piece of black. And they're like, yeah. nope, <laughs> it's because it's like, it's so, it really does have like a real smack to it. But that's also what's so cool about um, minimalism when it's done I mean, and of course I'm saying, well, it's totally subjective, of course, Sure. but um, there is just sort of this intangible feeling of like, this feels like music that's been in my head for years. And this mm -hmm. person is speaking it mm -hmm. and it's like um, fun, but also makes me super angry. Cause I'm like, I could have done that. No, actually you couldn't have painted the Rothko, <laughs> right, <laughs> but, right. Right? but there's this real sense of like, re it relates to you. Right. right? Um, so it, it made yeah. it feel accessible, you yeah. know, like I, I, I could write music kind of like this and I love this music and I would love to write it. So maybe I should be a composer kind of thing. So, um, but it was challenging cause I, you know, I, I was a drummer mostly, um, and I usually figured out things by ear. Mm. Uh, and I remember asking like pianist friends to like, tell me the notes, if I really needed to know the notes on like a marimba piece I was learning. I would like write them above the, you know, so when I got to undergrad, I really couldn't read music. Like I was not a good, so like the first year of undergrad was 
and I was a math major. I wasn't even a music major, but I took the music theory classes. <clears throat> I eventually dropped the math major. I hated it, but um, I liked it in high school, but um, it was like a crash course. Uh, like I had to teach myself to read music. So it was, it was tough, but it, it's sort of a, I always think of it in terms of like, you can get into this later. Like you hear about composers, they studied piano from the age of five until, and then kept, kept going with it. Or like my colleague who's a fantastic composer. He, he started his, his parents got him counterpoint lessons when he was in high school. That's so I, random. Just yeah, what every kid wants to find in their right, right. stocking. <laughs> I didn't know what counterpoint was until grad school, really. Right. Um, so, so I think it's, it's, I am maybe proof that you can sort of get into it later um, and still find your, your, your way. I mean, I still struggle. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not as good of a piano sight reader as I should be still. I'm better than I used to be, but it's just one of those things that I was never, never had to do. And um, that's actually something I want to stress. So um, maybe I should have actually had a little bit more of a thesis st statement at the beginning of the episode, but we record these in one shot because I don't like editing. So um, now is a good time to say that we're talking about all the different paths in music that you can take, but also what are entry points if you have some sort of like thought that maybe you want to write your own simple tunes or just get an idea of how composers kind of come to be actually mm -hmm. composers. And um, so I was the inverse of you. Um, I was super good at naming all of the notes. I didn't really learn to parse rhythms truly until about halfway through my sophomore year. I mm -hmm. just right as as string players, right, right? We are we are notoriously bad at rhythms. Also because there's like an ocean of us and we're not required to be precise like, you know, the marimba player or the right. piccolo player where it's like you are a 30 second note off and the whole world just grinds to right. a halt. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole thing is you don't have to be naturally good at something for you to just go ahead and do that as a meaningful part of your life. You just have to say, this is hard. And you soldier forward if you're passionate about it. Right. So don't feel like any of us are just like cruising along with this infinite knowledge that we have at our fingertips. Sometimes I need to subdivide a measure into 30 second notes to understand where the beats fall. That's just how sure. it is. And I play the measure just fine and nobody cares. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it takes me a little longer to figure out the chord in a symphony at the piano than, you know, a lot of other music professors, but I'll get it eventually. And yes. <laughs> I'll we'll, do, we'll do a, a follow up in five years. Be like, right. So how's that grandmother chord? Yeah. Coming? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, so you kind of, so you ended up graduating with a degree in composition. Was it a dual major, like percussion Actually, it was, and composition? It or? was a BA degree. It was hmm. like a general music degree, but I, I took a bunch of composition lessons and um, I didn't have to do a recital. That's, I didn't really want to do, I, I was kind of a, had a lot of stage fright. Mm, me too. Yeah. So I, I didn't, so I did the BA and that also enabled me to double major because I'd taken a bunch of, as part of my math major, I really got into philosophy. Mm. I took like a philosophy of math class and that, so I double majored in music and philosophy. So like the two, you know, my, when my dad was like, you're right, you should major in something that, you know, you're going to get a job. No. That's why the math was okay. And then I switched to music and philosophy. 
But anyway, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it turned like out I, okay. But yeah, I, I majored in uh, divination and buggy whip making, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just like what <laughs> right. is? I'm my uh, my father is a recently retired uh, professor of philosophy of science. So oh, cool, very you know in the weeds of yeah. like what does the word the mean? Like yeah. oh, let's write a treatise on this. Like good grief! <laughs> so I totally get it. So um, I mean, we're, we're talking about entry points. Let's talk about like what the formal education kind of consisted of? What were the things that you had to get good at till they said, yeah, okay, he's good enough to graduate with this thing? Um, you know, facility with notes and moving notes around a page and messing with notes. I mean, I think it's, it's and notation. Honestly. Notation. When you say facility yeah. with notes, is that in, um, including kind of like audiating, you know, hearing yes. them in your head in advance and stuff like that? Right. And being able to sort of take a suggestion and work with it. So it's a very curious thing, like teaching composition for one, you know, you get a, you get a PhD or a DMA in composition, usually with the goal of getting an academic job teaching composition like I do but you're never really taught how to teach composition. Right. You know, um, and so you, you know, I always just think back to my lessons with my teachers and it's what they wanted to see. And what I like to see in my students is, can you take a suggestion about messing with this theme or, you know, um, extending a section or, changing the harmonic rhythm of a, of a section or, you know, messing with form and do something meaningful with that, like with that suggestion. And All I right. think that's, that's what the, my teachers wanted me to, wanted to see, and, you know. And just for non-music majors, um, when we talk about form, we're, we're talking about like the structure of a piece, right? Right. Yes. Um, and then um, I'm assuming you probably had to start, you mentioned counterpoint, um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a composition major, but we did have to kind of like take an icing on the cake level, mm -hmm. look at things. So we like looked at, um, we started from like ye olde medieval, you know, mm -hmm. Gregorian chants, but most, most of our time was spent picking out, uh, very early counterpoint, uh, and like fugues. Yes. Right. Cause fugues are great at like teaching you how to kind of meddle with something a little, with like a little bit of subtlety. And right. then of course, um, you know, the kind of magnum opus of classic stuff like Sonata form. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. So um, would you just give us like a quick rundown of like why those things are important if you are considering um, like, why can't you just be like, no, I just <sighs> want to just write a blast of notes and there you go. Right. That's, a, that's right. such a good question. And I've gotten that same question from students. Why do I have to study <laughs> Why do Bach? I have to do this? Yeah, yeah I'm not going to write music it. like Bach. Why do I have to study Bach? Like, um, and what that music teaches you, the common practice music, Bach to Brahms, it teaches you, one, how notes work, in, in meaning how they work together. Um, so this you mentioned the idea of tension and release. I mean, all music is some form of that, right? So they- Unless they it's are, bad minimalism. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, um, so, you know, the, 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 
the idea of tension release is universal. It's not to say that going from a certain chord to another chord, you're gonna go, you're, you'll learn how that works like a five chord to a one chord, like a cadence. But what mm -hmm. that really is teaching you is like how you resolve dissonances and make them consonant. Um, and things like voice leading, that becomes really important. Like voice leading, you learn in theory class how to write four-part chorales and follow all these rules, right? And then you get to like fourth semester theory and you look at Debussy doing some planing chords and it's all parallel fifths. And you're like, wait, why did I learn all this stuff? Um, you learned it because that, that, uh, that other universal thing about the way notes work is that voice leading is paramount to things making sense and having forward motion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, yes, you might not write music like Mozart, but the way he, you know, orchestrates a chord progression in like his Jupiter symphony. I mean, that's, that's universally beautiful. Like that it's just be musical beauty. Yeah. I um, mean, like also it's just funny because you know, after music school and I, I scraped by informant analysis and I just, it was just really hard for me. And now I have a better understanding. Uh, thanks mostly actually to the, the jazz minor. And then a lot of the rock playing that I did helped contextualize those things in like a, a way that I understood, but um, I'll never forget um, my, still my favorite desert Island album um, is kid a. And I mm. remember I, played it i was i was like washing my car in my parents uh like driveway and my dad came out and my dad is like the most annoying person in my entire life and he said that sounds like buck i was just like <laughs> i was so mad because he was right actually like mm -hmm. the whole thing like everything in its right place is exactly like let's mess with six chords right let's, like resolve major minor let's get into it common so, tones yeah, exactly. Just common tone modulation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's so good. That's excellent minimalism. That song right there, yes. like top, top of the heap. Um, so there's like form and analysis. And also, would you agree that there's like this, I think it might be apocryphal, but I, I will always attribute it to Stravinsky. He said, when we're thinking about form mm -hmm. that if you have no limits, there's or no constraints. You can't really be creative. That right. sometimes you need to like hem yourself in to be like, what can I say in eight measures? Because if you give yourself eighty-eight, you could fill them, but with what? Right, right. So I always suggest students if they're kind of coming at a piece, they okay, they they know they want to write up one movement sort of symphonic work or something. That's all they know. Um, they might have a couple chords that they like that they're going to use. I always tell them, draw a picture of the piece, meaning it doesn't have to be like a, you know, it could be a representative picture, but more importantly, how is it going to unfold? Mm. Like the piece is going to be, so like there's a really interesting composer, um, Anna Meredith. Mm. And I will link thing, to her in the show notes. Yeah, it's, she's remarkable. Um, but there's a video, I think it's like on the, on the Ableton Live website, because she uses this software Ableton Live, but mm -hmm. she does, she talks about how she writes and she has this, a she's plastered her wall with pictures of her pieces. Um, and so she'll write like a, like a little, almost looks like a mountain, like almost like a waveform or a mountain peak. 
and that's going to be the climax. And then she wants to, you know, get quieter. And then she'll put a little note, like a little scribble, little note says like high strings or, you know, you know, low woodwinds. Yeah. You know, and so that you have a sort of template to work from because we tend to sort of start a piece of music from the beginning and just kind of write it linearly until it's done. But you'd have to do a lot of sort of editing. If you have a template of it, you kind of, it can always change too. Right. That's the thing with having made decisions. I always tell students when they're like, but I don't know how I want to interpret this. And I said, well, decide, really commit to it. And if you don't like it, then that is super informative about what you think about this. Yeah. Right. So I'll even, you know, say, okay, I want to do a section that has, you know, all the instruments, the orchestra playing, and I want to do that for two minutes. And then I want to get quieter for one minute and just to have a wood woodwind feature, then I want to do, you know, it can always change, but to have that little picture is really helpful. So you're also seeing the form because that's what you're, when you're talking about like different textures changing over time, you're, you're creating form and tension that, and release. That's right. That's right. Um, and so another thing that a lot of people who um, didn't go to um, music school, one thing that I really, maybe actually even the, the number one thing that I got was actually um, ear training. Um, just the idea. I remember, like we were doing the basics. You know, here are the you know these twelve intervals between these things. But then when we got to like theory four, when things got in the weeds, when we yeah. were like you know singing Messian from sight yeah. with like Kerwin hand symbols. Oh God, <laughs> uh, I earned that C minus. I was so proud of that grade. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. But really, really hard. Um, but I remember the teacher, Julia Heinen, she taught us, she said something offhanded and I was like, can we explore this more? And it became like Harry Potter when she's like, excuse me, Ms. McGonagall, can, can we, can we talk about the chamber of secrets? And like the whole thing just comes unraveled. She said, yeah. you know, it's just, I'll always recognize that major seventh because it, there's a clench somewhere inside of me. And I, and she's like, it's just visceral. And I'm like, do you feel something when you hear like a 10th or she's like, absolutely. And so we just kind of went through listening and we went through and we made an inventory of how the intervals made each of us feel neat, which by the way, is like a cribs note for composition, right? You want to feel broad reassurance that major 10th will get the job done, right? Right. Like you want to, you want to feel like, like your stomach's upset. Let's go low Korean sharp too, and just ruin your life with that. (laughs) So, um, so um, what, uh, if people are listening to this right now and are like, I'm, I don't know your training. I don't know an interval. Um, I don't have a private teacher right now. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest that they do? I mean, I think step one could be just like find a community college that is sure. offering, you know, either theory or ear training or harmony. Right. But right. what, are, is there anything else that you would just recommend either, a, either a text or an exercise? Yeah. So, um, well, I, the community college thing is a great idea. And I also think it's nice to connect with any college, community college or not, a music department and the com- composition teacher there, if they have one, and say, I'm interested in learning because this happens to me. I'll get a, you know, an adult, you know, community member will just, I'll get an email out of the blue and say, you know, I realize that I, I can't take a class with you, but do you have any recommendations about 
or local teachers, I always forward them my students' information. Right. Yeah, so, like, like grad a recent students, graduate. Right. People who are students. on fire for it. The, the education right. is recent. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I got myself halfway through college was like starting to do either theory or cello lessons. So yeah, yeah super, super good idea. And there's on there's tons of online resources and, and software. You know, we didn't have that when I was an undergrad. I, if we did, it was very archaic. But now it's I'm thinking of there's a software called Aurelia. Mm. which which will sort of it'll test you on things like intervals or chord recognition recognition or um you know it runs the gamut but depending on what you get right or wrong it'll sort of guide you mm. so it won't let, let you finish a certain section until you've gotten a certain number right and the idea is that once you can get a certain percentage right it's the software is confident that okay you have you can un, you you can hear that chord well now that's right. And the the whole reason that we're saying ear training is something as opposed to just writing things on the page and hoping or experimenting on the piano until you find something is that I mean, you can do that. You can experiment on the piano and kind of go Absolutely. one by one. You can totally do that. And it's completely legitimate. But what you'll probably find is you're like, I could get so much more done if I could hear this in my head. Right. Um, and that intervals have... Um, especially depending on their harmonic context, basically what other things are going on around them. They have reliable, they're, they're like levers you can pull. There are emotional mm -hmm. things that you can get out of these intervals. And if you want to express that in your piece or you have no starting point, but you know you want to express something about the tension of our times, right. well, then you're going to be looking at, you know, major sevenths, whole steps, uh, you know, sus chords. There, there's all these different things that you can right. do. And this is kind of like, you can do it without any formal education at all, but we're giving you the shortcut and it's still a long road either way. Right. <laughs> but you're sure. welcome on the road. We're excited to have you no matter what. Absolutely. And um, you know, and then yeah. you said the thing about uh, hearing what you, what, and you know, putting on the page what you hear in your head, but it's also knowing what you're hearing when you hear music that you love. That's right. Right. So you hear a chord in a piece and in, you could go to the, the piano or an instrument and figure it out, but it might be a passing something you hear on the radio or just a, a very quick, like, you know, Schoenberg is great for that because <laughs> you might not like his music. It's very dissonant, but the there's, pop quiz. Yeah, there's a, there's a little <laughs> chord that happens as a result of some form of the tone row he's doing, you know, that'll be like, oh my God, that was so beautiful. Like, and it, it goes by really quick. What was that? Yeah, looking at no. you for Clartenacht. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, or Messian is a good example too, because his yeah. music's very dissonant, but you know, less less so than Schoenberg. But you know, there's I, I still find court like things happening in Messian's music. I'm like, I have to know what is that amazing sound. Um, and I'm pretty good. I can, you know, pick it up, but so you can always figure it out, but I think it's it's nice to have that really quick. Oh, I love that, you know, major nine that's hanging over the, like the opening of um, Appalachian Spring. Oh, man. Like, with yeah. That major seventh and then the major nine comes in. 
Yeah. I was going to say Daphnis and Chloe, but like, right. Yeah. Like the same, just that, that tension, um, funny story and people, my string player, people are going to be so mad when they hear this. So obviously I tune to an A and I tune my A first. Um, I tune that A to a G major chord <laughs> because I want to hear because of where the overtones fall oh, neat. that that's like i need to hear the the ninth is what i want to hear but legitimately every pianist in college when i would do that they'd be like they just give me like <laughs> such a side eye and be like can't you be like yeah normal and the answer is no no <laughs> no i mean of course i can tune to the d chord but for whatever right. reason for, i just feel like that that pitch just gets like geared up so much more squarely Maybe also because I like to hear an A very flat. Mm. I, I really like like 438. I'm like, that's good eating. But of course, I'd be out of tune with my section. And that sure. helps me lead that note a little tiny bit. Oh, high. nice. Interesting. Um, yes. Yeah. So then um, is there anything else in terms of like the formal education? Um, actually, even just looking back, were there either courses or ideas um, that you were just like, God, that is so, that was so relevant. And I reflect on that all the time, or I'm so glad I took that course or what? Yeah. So I think it was how often my teacher in graduate school would pull up a Bach piece to explain something that he thought I should try in my, my music never sounded like Bach at all. Um, so it's like one of those wellsprings of, of possibilities, like looking at just you know, the preludes and fugues. I mean, you know, there's a reason that Stravinsky apparently had, you know, I don't know if it was the preludes and fugues or something else or the inventions that he had on his piano when he died. Like he was, he was looking at Bach when he, when he passed away. So not, I don't think actively. <laughs> I was but... just going to say, <laughs> he found a misprint and he was like, yeah. oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's Parallel always fifths in the base. He was like, right. It's like, eh, that's enough for me. I'm done. Um, how did I not notice that before? Um, or like the whole text was signed like Anna Magdalena. He's yeah. like, oh God. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so I think just think there's just so, so many things to discover in that music about, you know, transformation of melodies and counterpoint and voice leading and um so you know you could use that as a as a as a guide in a minute you know a lot of box music as a guide to say not okay i'm not going to write music that sounds like this but the notes are moving this way and are doing these kinds of things right that works that's always going to work whether also, you're writing you know a really thick ninth chord or a major triad that's right. Um, and it's funny, you, you mentioned um, uh, Meredith uh, with, on the Ableton site. Anna and, Meredith, yeah. Anna Meredith, yeah. Um, so I've written, I, I'm, I don't really consider myself a composer. I've written music, but I don't know that I feel like I've done the work. But I, I learned about creating music two different ways. So I was a jazz minor, right, which is inherently improvisation-based, which is like extemporaneous composition. Sure. Um, and, um, but then the other way was, um, I was looking for a job and it was, uh, I was just absolutely desperate. And I called up this composer I had worked for and he sent me acid looping software. 
And he said, learn this. He sent me, it was like something out of a spy movie. He sent me a laptop and the acid software. And he said, learn this and come to my house tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I did because that's one thing I loved actually about it. Cause I was learning, I learned Cubase first and then I learned pro tools, both of which have a pretty steep learning curve. If you a curve, if you want to like be muscular at all with anything sure. in it, but acid is like, what do you want to do, baby? Let's drag and drop. Yeah. Let's like, yep. Um, and you can modify things and apply all kinds of filters. Um, and so for four years, I actually wrote music for TV purely using looping software. And then every now and again, I'd like throw in a little tiny bit of something that I yeah. you know performed. Um, but don't let the fact that like uh, even GarageBand offers you a, a simple access point. Looping software gives you an idea of what you like and gives yes. you an idea how to layer things. Right. And from there, you can actually kind of retrofit like, oh, okay, this is kind of what I want, but here's what it's going to be like with, with non-looping instruments. And it really right. helped, right? You can just drag and drop. I want to take this up a fifth. What happens if we add this other note? What happens if we add three different things on top of it? And I just found that um, it was, it's not, a, it's not the purest's form of learning how to compose. Sure. And it was very much like in the trenches. Like I literally had music on TV three weeks after I learned to use that software. Yeah. It's not good music, but it worked for it. It, it was survivor and fear factor. And like, oh, fun. You know, like just reality shows. Yeah. Sometimes they wouldn't even have the thing ready. And they'd be like, Emily, uh, we need music for people uh, running from a fire and then music for a woman who's <laughs> going to be eating cockroaches. And I'm like, right. Cockroach eating music. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how do you do this? Yeah. Um, anyway, but like that kind of experimentation is also a great way to like feel free because there are rules, but what's kind of cool is that the looping software applies those rules for you. Right. Absolutely. So I I've been teaching GarageBand and Logic with Logic is like the, the souped up version. Yes. GarageBand is like Apple's way of like getting you into it. And then you're like, I wish I could do this. Oh, I'll pay the $200 so I can do it. Um, which isn't that much. Right. Um, I paid like $1,100 for like a, a pro tools that like didn't last yeah. more than a year. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable um, that you can get a fully fledged piece of software like that for $200. But, yeah. Um, and I've taught it, you know, I teach it GarageBand specifically to the music education majors at my school. It's mm-hmm. required that they take this music technology, intro to music technology class. Um, and I do it for two reasons. One, because I think it unlocks their creativity mm-hmm. that gets them excited about music in a way they might have not been before. So they can sort of translate that into the way they teach it. And also because it's a great teaching tool. So if you want to learn about how music works, yes, you can look at Bach, but you can also play around with Garage band, right? Because you, you get a you get feedback, immediate feedback of oh those notes work together or not, right? Yeah, it's those rhythms work together or not. Let's move the like you said, transpose it. Does it work now? Yes. Oh, that's cool. What did I do? Well, I transpose it by a perfect fourth. So okay, so those intervals work. That kind of thing, and um, I've seen that happen with really young people, like just like ten year olds go to the iPad and start dragging loops into the sequencer 
and create really interesting uh, stuff. So yeah, that's a really good point. A really good entry point would to be sort of come at it both ways, like the the formal kind of like, you know, classical training, but also with all the software that's available, just mess around with loops and sequences and yeah, like get a yeah. cheap MIDI keyboard. It's it's really it's it should be fun. And one of the things, you know, you're mentioning 10 year olds. Um, if you're listening to this and you are not like even a digital native, much less a music technology native, don't let fear of the learning curve or the fact that it might not work for a little bit, you know, that it might not sound the way you want, like 10 year olds don't care. And that's why they, pro they progress so quickly. Right. right? And also they have these kind of goldfish memories, right. To steal from Ted Lasso, <laughs> yeah. right. Like, or Bjorn Borg, right. He always forgot the last point, whether he won or lost, he's just like onward onto the next thing. So, yeah. um, you know, you've gotten good at other things and you know that that takes time. So right. just l give yourself some time. And also if the software does scare the hell out of you, you can, again, approach somebody in a music department. It doesn't even have to be the music tech person, anybody who's interacting with music technology. So like a, a composition uh, teacher or student. And in an afternoon, you will, it, it really is meant, that's the beauty of, I think, GarageBand is it's really meant to mimic a lot of other computer things that you've done and kind uh -huh. of follow the rules that way. Right. Um, and then I guess the last thing I want to share uh, just in terms of my experience with playing in jazz combos is um, for the first six weeks of combo class, we were learning, we were doing ear training and we were transcribing solos, which is like really terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, had, I was so stupid. I'm like, I'm going to choose Lee Morgan. Yeah, great. Choose a, <laughs> choose a guy who plays 9,000 notes. Yeah. But what's funny is for all of our solos, when we were learning tunes, um, he limited us for our first couple times to two notes. We could play two, two notes in our solo to impress upon us the importance of rhythm. Because when we think about composing, we think about notes. And of right. course there are notes, but I can't tell you how many new music concerts I've played where they've given me rhythm cells and they've yeah. said, do something in an upward trend, but the rhythm is the thing that we need. And right. so for string players, when you're starting to look at this, rhythm really is the tailoring that kind of knits a lot of our ideas about composition sure. together. Don't sleep on the rhythmic aspect and don't look to complicate right. your, right. your, your composing. Absolutely. And that's um, one thing I can yeah. say without a doubt that... Uh, being a drummer really helped with Oof, me. Right. You know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with rhythm and I like really rhythmic, com rhythmically complex music, but I don't know if that would have been the case if I was a string player or, you know, so it's, it's fun to sort of try to get a hold of music like that to really sort of spark your imagination because we don't hear it a lot. We don't, you know, we don't hear, I'm trying to think of a, like even I know there's a very esoteric composer named Kanlan Nancaro, who's kind of a, he wrote most of his music for player piano <laughs> because it was so rhythmically complex that humans couldn't do it. This was before <laughs> computers. So this is like mid-century 60s. So he figured out, he built his own, uh, you know, punching machine 
wow punch these these piano rolls um and that music is so far out <laughs> and crazy rhythmically that it's it just really can be inspiring so like if i'm sort of at a stage where i'm like feeling less than creative i'll just throw on some of his player piano studies and i'm like oh yeah i could do something like that which is impossible but um, <laughs> um yeah there's a podcast called how did this get made have you heard of it <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah um and they you know they lambaste humorously affectionately uh, movies that have like you know terrible premises and it's yeah. almost always um with like a-list celebrities but it's like what is this nightmare and there was a i think it was was it just called piano it was starred elijah wood and it had the premise was that this guy um was forcing this pianist who had terrible stage fright and who had had a meltdown in front of people and lived in obscurity afterward he had to go perform this thing and it had an impossible measure of music mm -hmm. and literally scrawled on the music was like miss a note and you'll die and there's like a sniper <laughs> trained on him and all this stuff but here's the best part i actually found the still from the movie and even i could play this on the piano and i'm a really bad pianist <laughs> and i was like you should have had a Poser. Or, or it could have been a cellist and it just would have been like a dotted rhythm. They're like, now don't play this yeah, as right. a triplet. And the, the cellist would have been like, no, sorry. Yeah, I sorry. can't count yeah. to four. I do threes, yeah. twos. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but like um, I hope that from like listening to this, you understand like this emphasis that we're placing on rhythm. It's not to admonish you for what you don't know, but just to say, don't sleep on this skill because yes. it's just, it's also something that really puts you at ease when you're sight reading, because you know about sight reading, it's not necessarily about getting all the notes, but it's about being in the same place with the rest of the orchestra, right? right? So like having a sense of rhythm uh, and being able to figure it out is so liberating. And it took me too long to do that. I really was afraid of it. And my private teachers, I don't know if they didn't know because I listened a lot. I listened mm -hmm. to recordings all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it really took me failing out of theory two mm. and having to go back to theory one to be like, nope, this is how rhythm works. Yeah. So like string people do not be afraid of it. Right. It's everything that you need. Well, and much of the, you know, not to get too broad, but I also think about, you know, I so I teach the uh, the world music class at my school. Ooh, so I fun. did a, I studied a lot of ethnomusicology in graduate school. I really kind of I felt like you know once I got there, if I was better at writing words than I am, at, I feel like writing music. I probably would have been an ethnomusicologist or some you know like a, a researcher. Mm -hmm. um, but what that you know music that you from around the world, most of it, if not all of it, is not notated. Right. So, and it's learned orally. And so the way, you know, when you hear, so my, my big connection to this world is, is through the Mbira from Zimbabwe. So I, yes. I work with the thumb piano, right? Yes. Uh, it uses more than just the thumb, but, oh um, yes. So, um, but, uh, Paul Berliner, who I work with in graduate school and continue to um, on some of his projects. He's like the preeminent scholar on the Ibira and cool. Um, that music, I think, taught me tremendous amounts about um, rhythmic 
complexity. Yeah, ingenuity. To, ingenuity, that's a better word. Yeah. Like, because when you hear it, it's like, oh, that's so pleasant and lovely. Um, but when you really think about what's going on and that the fact that this music was not written down, there's something about the interlocking rhythms of that music that it's like unlike anything else that you've ever heard. So listening to music from different parts of the world, you know, you know, Hindustani music from India, that's unlike anything you've ever heard, probably uh, as it relates to like classical music or um, gamelan. I was just going to say like, Gamelon, um, a couple episodes ago, we talked about the Ketchak, right? Oh, the, awesome. the interlocking like monkey chant also yeah. because we had a very small and very subdued teacher. And I was like a bit of a prankster class clown. I know it's hard to imagine, <laughs> but she, she talked about the dance and I was like, could, could you demonstrate this dance? And she demonstrated the dance and like was oh, running nice. around and doing the whole thing phenomenal but yeah we had to do i remember we had to do gamelan classes and like the uh, whole idea of like elighting a last beat and first beat yes like that was you have to like let go of your whole idea of what it things are instead look at just rhythmic cells right and patterns right that catch each other and sometimes they don't right you have to wait for a while right. yeah absolutely gamelan music actually again this is another opportunity like most most colleges around that you don't need to be you know enrolled as like a major have a world music like one class yep. and it is so exciting and so interesting and confronting um right. fantastic also um i don't know if it's mbira or kalimba is, is mbira just zimbabwe so the mbira is a a keyboard instrument found all over it is here in Africa in different forms. The, right. The, the one that um, that that I've studied through Paul Berliner is the Imbira Zavadzimu, which is is the Zimbabwean Imbira. But there's there's tons of different kinds of made out of different things. And right. there's um, um there's a, a show based on a book. It's the number one ladies detective agency starring Jill Scott, who is phenomenal in everything she does. But um, the the soundtrack is almost exclusively um, native. Um, it's like all music from sub-Saharan Africa. And you'll catch yourself singing the melodies because they're so hooky and so, their voice in such like a, a an unrestrained, like full-throated way. And you'll find yourself singing and then you're like, let's tap your foot. And you're like, nope, this is actually in 17. <laughs> yeah, or, right. you know, it's like it's in, you know, meters that change and you just have to kind of give give that up. Um, and right. it's, it's just beautiful to listen to, um, totally compelling. And also it's an instrument that while there are people who are virtuosi at it, you can make really great music and keep it so simple. Right. Right. Like unlike well, the cello where like you have to sweat blood in order to manufacture a tone. Right. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's it's and music is around the world is much more communal than we think about it in, in the West, like classical music, like you formally train you, then you, you know, do what your teacher says, then you do what the conductor says or your section leader says, you know, a lot of music around the world, it's meant so everybody can be involved. That's right. Like the whole the whole community. So there's usually some way to get into it, whether you're clapping along or dancing or singing, or even the the layers of something like Imbira music 
there's always a part that's going to be like the basic part that's not too hard to play, but everyone can play right. it. So it's always going to work in that particular tune. So it teaches, you know, music like that teaches you about like, you know, how music works among people, which is really important, right? That's not right. And that's and actually, right. And that kind of actually just like brings us all the way around because the whole purpose of my life <laughs> and this podcast and my adult ed org, and probably a lot of what you're doing is to give people the resources to make music and to be in a community of musicians and to make music in their larger communities sure, and, and to sort of make it um, to really make it accessible and that sure, it's nice to have a lineage, but you don't need lineage in order to make meaningful music. Um, and now that I'm looking back on it, cause I used to look back on some of the teachers that I'd studied with and they're brand names that make people kind of raise their eyebrows. Right. Yeah. But when I really look back on it, it's people who've supported me on my way to making music a meaningful part of my life. And some of those people are not the brand name teachers, but sure. they are like in my pantheon of like people who made me passionate about music and sharing music. I think that that's really it, actually. Teachers who opened the door for me and said, come in, we are waiting for you, as opposed to, can you jump this high? Right. 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 Um, and so I'm hoping that hearing you talk about like your, the way you teach and the way you learned lets people understand that if this is a path that they're interested in, there are a lot of different ways into it and that we are here with you and for you. Absolutely. Definitely not above you. <laughs> Just Absolutely. like come into the trenches <laughs> yeah. with us. Um, let's nerd out. I let's mean, that's, nerd that's, out. That's, that's why I got it. into this that's finally got me into academics is like, I was just a total nerd. I liked thinking <laughs> and learning and I wanted to be around people that did the same thing. So yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, yeah. I remember the, uh, the first time a, a, a com composition teacher, or maybe it was my form and analysis teacher. Um, we were learning about sixth chord and he literally had a Batman mask for the Neapolitans. <laughs> just like, Yes. So every time I teach that, I, I do wish I had the mask. Instead, I just do the serious face and mm -hmm. hope they understand. Um, so as we're kind of wrapping up, I suppose if there's anything that you're on fire about to, to talk about in this domain, or if there's anything that you want to direct, uh, like resources that you want to direct people to that we haven't talked about, um, the floor is yours. Okay. You know, I was thinking about you know, what are the tools people need mm -hmm. or that are useful? Um, and we've kind of hinted at them, but I think it is good to have some sort of um, what would be called a digital audio workstation software right. like Logic. So nowadays, I mean, you can write everything by hand. It takes a long, long time. I mean, I still write stuff by hand, but it's usually just sketches and then I put it all on the computer. But, you know, when I do a lot of my kind of like musical thinking i i have like to have some place to put it so it's usually in in a daw like mm -hmm. logic or ableton live or pro tools where i can that's kind of where i compose so it's it, that's an important tool i think these days for people to have if they're interested in in composing music and then it's some form of notation software so like muse score for instance is it's totally free right um, and a lot of my students use it it's you know not 
quite as good as some of the higher, you know, the pay, pay uh, applications like Sibelius or Finale or Dorico, but, you know, that gets you putting notes on a page immediately uh, and it's free. Also, um, I think MuseScore, um, I finally caved and I did a Sibelius subscription, but um, I think MuseScore is the one that has handwriting recognition. Um, or there was another one. There's one that, that was free or very close to free. And on my tablet, I, cause I'm, I'm faster actually by, yeah. um, by, by hand uh, sometimes. And it, it converts it into clear. Yeah. I'm not sure if MuseScore does that, but there is like a iPad app or a, a tablet app that does that for sure. Yeah. And it was cheap. It was like under 20 bucks or free. Right. Um, so yeah, definitely have tools like that because also there's nothing worse. I remember because in college, I didn't have access to that. There was nothing worse than coming up with some cool motif on the piano. And then by the time I'd gotten home, I, it just had vanished or like, I right. missed like the cool note and I'm like, and you you just can't reproduce it. Um, so yeah, yeah. take advantage of a, any state of flow that you might find and just right. record everything and then throw it out if you hate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, Half, half, I'd say half of my composition lessons with students now, it's looking at scores, but it's also listening. Hey, look what I came up with in the practice room. I recorded it on my phone. Yeah. You know, check it out. What do you think? Um, so yeah, just having that tool there is really helpful. But don't don't knock the uh, the notation thing. Either, yeah. Because pe people get sort of, do I really have to notate every? You don't have to notate anything. Um, but it, it lets you see the music in a way that you can't in a, in a thing like logic, right? I guess logic does have some notation, but, you know, again, I don't know, I keep plugging, not plugging her, she's just amazing. Anna <laughs> Meredith, I think in the same video, she talks about how she writes all of her music, even her electronic music in Sibelius. <laughs> and it's not that she's like, and then she, so she has the notes, she just wants an inventory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then she can use the software to move the notes around, like copy and paste or f transpose. And then once she's satisfied with the notes and rhythms, she puts it into Ableton and then changes the sounds. Yeah, right? no, so, that makes a ton of sense. Um, so that, that can be really helpful. So, um, and then also, if you've got something that you really like, um, I can't tell you how many studio gigs I walked into when I was in LA and somebody would like hum what they wanted the cello part to be. And I could do that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's so much easier when somebody has it notated for me, even if it's not completely perfect, because right. we can just make the little adjustments and go, and then you don't waste time. And also if you want to share your music and you want your music to go out into the world, Right. easiest possible way is to have a sheet that somebody can take. And then next thing you know, you're tagged on TikTok. You got 10,000 views. Right. And no. no money though, because there's no money in this. No, let's, let's not talk no. about money. <laughs> Absolutely not. But yeah, no, it's, that's the text, right? That's the, yeah. It really represent a lot about what you're doing musically in a score. And it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be just, it, it doesn't also have to be, traditional notation, it can be text and 
pictures and, and shapes. And yeah. yeah, again, I've gotten lots of scores that were like, okay, we need things that are low and rumbling for this amount of this number of seconds. And I've actually done compositions where I've had a timer that was synchronized to the other people on the stage. And then there were spirals and swirls and all kinds <laughs> of different things. And every right. performance was different. Did some like aleatoric music and it was super fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's no one way to do it, but you have to do it. Right. <laughs> you do, you do have to just like, right. you have to get something down. Yeah. Um, if you want it out in the world by anybody other than you. Sure. So, Absolutely. um, so I heard a rumor that there's going to be like a new website, something for you this yeah, summer. I'm, I've had, I've had an old website forever and I've decided I needed to update it. So it's very minimal. Um, but the like best... steampunk blog spot or like a yeah, live no. journal. <laughs> um, yeah, it's right now it's just a Google site, but, uh, I actually, for the, I mean, this just goes to show how old I am. I joined uh, SoundCloud for the first time last week. So there, that's it, the start. This is um, happily hosted on SoundCloud. Okay. So yes. Um, but yeah, if people are interested, they can always just go to the Sonoma State University music department, um, faculty page where I'll have things posted and um, links to, to interesting things. And, and I guess I'll also plug the, there's a website called imbiraplatform.org, which is the sort of hosting site for the publications by Paul Berliner on the Imbira. Um, and there's some really, I mean, it's, it's geared towards working with specific texts that he's written or, or, or is writing, but just, if you want to hear some amazing music it's up there for free super cool yeah definitely i will put a link to all of these things in the show notes and maybe i will um see if i can find some paul berliner goodies on youtube and, and just just so everybody kind of has a little bit more context um but it's been fantastic to have you and to catch up with you um and i really appreciate you sharing all of your kind of down-to-earth brass tacks this is how to do it if you want to like really just yeah. start writing some music yeah thank yes. you so much thank you so much